0: I remember now the first year we were together, he stood up at 99 years old at our holiday party and he he could barely talk. And he said, you know, I just can't tell you how pleased I am. Take what you have here and go with it. You know, you have an incredible opportunity and go with it. Those are the kinds of things, uh, you know, that his, his legacy lasts way, way, way beyond his death.
1: Well, hey there. If we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. Well, I just said it, and I say it at the beginning of every podcast. We exist to help impact-driven leaders. And today, I am just so stoked because I get to introduce you to someone that I really think Exemplifies what it looks like to live, act, and lead in a manner that is impact driven. Because today I get to introduce you to my friend, Herb Sargent. Herb is the president and CEO of Sargent Corporation. They do excavation and infrastructure projects across the state of Maine, and honestly in multiple states now, but they're headquartered in Maine. It's an over 400 person company, and the thing that makes me so interested and so excited about this organization is, yes, they're about building projects, but as you'll hear, Herb's heart and the heart of the people that work in this organization Well, they're about building people. They do such incredible work. And I really wanted to share with you the story of the business and a snapshot into what makes this organization truly uh, culturally exceptional in this industry and really an industry leader. There's so much gold from a business perspective in this conversation, but also from a leadership perspective. And in order to understand where Sargent Corporation is today, we got to start by looking at how it began. Well, Herb, I'm stoked about this. I think I'd like to start this conversation in a way that I don't think I've ever started a conversation before. I'd love to start by you telling us about your grandfather. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about who your grandpa was and a little bit about what he built.
0: Uh, so my grandfather, uh, I'm named after him. His name was Herb Sargent also. And uh, he, star- he grew up in Elton, Maine. And the, the society he grew up in at that time had more in common with George Washington society than, than he did with ours when he passed away. Uh, no electricity, no automobiles, no airplanes, no, you know, no radios, no nothing. Um, so he started, you know, that's where he got a start. And working on a farm, his, his dad and his uncle had a sawmill. And his initial business foray was to, uh, was to sell sawdust around to uh, area farms. Uh, because there were no refrigerators, people just used ice boxes, and the sawdust is what insulated the ice boxes. So he kind of gets started in his in his business world as a 10, 12 year old doing that, and then eventually went on to uh, to found H E Sargent, which is the it's an odd combination of companies that we have now, but it's it's one that we operate now, and really did great things over decades to. Move the construction industry ahead, to move the transportation uh, segment ahead in Maine, and, and really became one of, the, one of the half a dozen household names in Maine uh, for construction.
1: Yeah. What year did he found the company?
0: 1924.
1: 1924. So, I mean, y'all are almost a century old.
0: Yeah, I almost feel it too. Yeah,
1: that's that I mean, that's insane. I mean they're, they're, I mean, truly, you look at the number of hundred year companies there are still around, and it's like the list is not that long. So I mean yeah. that now granted we're not there yet, so we better not count our right. eggs before they hatch, but y'all are y'all are knocking on the door. Yeah. Okay, so what did he start the company as? What was like the the, the first kind of initial stage of the company? Because you even alluded to the fact that it's changed a lot since then.
0: Yeah. So he, he started with, you know, like a lot of construction companies back in those days, he bought a dump truck and and put that dump truck to work. Uh, he drove it himself around the different contractors so He hired it out to other people. And then uh, after three or four years, uh, got an opportunity to buy another dump truck and kind of began to expand operations. And until 1930, I think it was that he bought a, a front shovel, and in his words, with a with a with a front shovel and a two-yard dump truck with a hydraulic hoist, I was in the class all by myself. And uh, so so that's kind of the way it started. And it, it's really, when we look back as a company, when we get our, our management together and look back, it's, it's such a, you know, if you're a surveyor and you're, you want to approach a new point and you're set up on a point, you want a really long backsight to get a good, accurate foresight. And this, you know, this backside, you know, ninety-six years now, uh, and, and what he did, and the way he did it, and, and the values that he instilled throughout the decades, you know, just really is is a tremendous gift for us.
1: Mm. Kind of on that point, did you know your grandfather? Yeah, I knew him well. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so how would you describe his personality? And then maybe you weren't thinking about this whenever you, you were a kid, but just kind of knowing what you know now, how would you describe his leadership style?
0: I would say his leadership style was, was quiet. Uh, he, he set expectations and he didn't have to say much when those expectations weren't met. Uh, very quiet, very humble guy, very, in some ways, meek. And, you know, community person, really involved in the community, Really deep family man, a man of faith, and uh, you know, just a, a great mentor for me. Uh, he passed away in 2006, so at 100 years old, and it, he was just a great mentor for me over the years uh, as I started my business back in the 90s.
1: Mm. Is there a lesson or set of lessons that you think you took from your grandfather that, that have made you into the leader that you are today?
0: I would say empathy and patience.
1: Which, I, I mean, that's kind of absurd given the time that he was leading at. Like, it's not yes. like people... Like, now, empathy is kind of like a buzzword and everyone's talking about it on LinkedIn. I don't think he was learning that on LinkedIn at that time.
0: No. No, it just... I, I don't know, you know, his his dad was kind of a rough guy, mm. as I take it. And and I don't know how Herb turned out so genteel as he was, but he, he really, uh, I mean... Of course, he was 55 years old when I met him, right? When, when I became his grandson. So maybe he was a little, little bit more dastardly in his younger years, but I doubt it.
1: Hmm. And I mean, it, just based on the stories that I've heard from you and and like literally, I've talked to people from Maine that you've never met that know the name Sergeant. Like the, the, I mentioned the name Sergeant and they're like, oh yeah, I know that. <laughs> like whenever I started actually doing that, it blew my mind. It was kind of like his name. I mean, it was almost like he was the de facto governor of Maine in some ways. It's like his name was a household name. And certainly in your community, he was a pillar. Is that fair to say?
0: Yeah, absolutely. He uh, he really took a lot of pride in the community and, and especially for for the youth and for underserved. He, he was really, really involved in serving the youth of the community, heavily involved in YMCA and, and Boy Scouts and that sort of thing. And just set an example for us that's frankly difficult to to achieve you know he just he was so he was so in tune with with different people in his community and what the needs were not not just on a kind of a, uh, on a wholesale basis but also an individual basis um, he, he knew where people needed help
1: hmm. and i mean wasn't your elementary school literally named after him
0: yeah, my my school was named the Herbert Sargent School, and and I got no end of grief from, from going to a school named after me.
1: <laughs> yeah, so it's like it's one thing; it's probably pretty cool to have the school named after your grandfather, but when you're also named after your grandfather, and yeah. you're like walking into your school every day, right? That's kind of awesome. And
0: the, t- the kids would say, "Hey, you can tell the teachers whatever you want," you know? <laughs> they do the same way.
1: Like I own this school. This, do you see the name that's on the wall right now? That's great. Uh, okay, so kind of on that note, as you were growing up and as you were a kid, like, did you have this goal or desire to work in the company one day? Was that a goal of yours, or something that you thought you would do, or what was your mindset surrounding that?
0: I'd say I did, and I'll just try to paint a picture here. Our house was on one side of the driveway that went down to the shop. And the school was on the other side of the driveway, and uh, you've been there, so you know. But I'd go to school in the morning, and after school, I didn't go home. I went down to the shop, you know, as a five, six, seven, eight-year-old kid, and I'm sure I was underfoot. But the the mechanics were always really good to to you know let me get on a machine or whatever. And for me, you know, once you kind of this will sound funny to some of your listeners, but once you smell the diesel smoke and the hydraulic oil and all that stuff. It just it becomes something you have an, a, an affinity with and, and also just the people, you know, the people are just so true and friendly and, and you know, just on point.
1: Mm. So at what age did you step into the company?
0: Started, you know, in the summertime at 14. Wow. Um, and then, I, and then I, I was in the shop and then I moved into the field as a laborer at 16 and then I went to work full-time at the company when I was 20.
1: And, and when you were 20, was your mindset, this is where I want to be, this is where I love to be, I'm doing what I want to do?
0: I would say I was still a little bit in search of, of what was going on, but it, it, it hit me pretty quickly. You know, the camaraderie on the job sites really, that's what really attracted me and kept me there. You know, just the, the people that I got to know, the people I got to work with, the things we achieved on a daily basis that you may not have thought you could achieve in the morning. Uh, you know, in the celebrations around that sort of thing, really just build a team and a camaraderie that made that drew me in and made me want to be a part of that for the rest of my life.
1: And was it something inside your grandfather or your dad or you that? I mean, it's not a given that, OK, the grandson's entering in the company. He's going to start as a laborer. I, like out on job sites. Like was, was that just a given for them? Like if you're going to be a part of this, that's what you're going to do. Or is that what you want to do? How did that occur?
0: No, that's, that's the way it was. meted out to me. <laughs> if you want to be a part, well, it was kind of like, it doesn't matter if you want to be, when I was 14, it doesn't matter if you want to be a part of this. This is what you're going to do this summer. Because you're not, hanging <laughs> around, you're not going to hang around
1: the lake. You, you're confused and thinking we, we care about what you want to do.
0: <laughs> right. So, So that was good. But my, you know, my dad was always very careful about, you know, how things looked and as was my grandfather. And so, you know, when it when it came time to work in the in the office or in the shop, uh, it was it was always usually for the first five years. I got the worst uh, assignments like Mm. when I started full time. Uh, I, I know that my dad went down to the VP operations and said, put him on the furthest job away.
1: Wow. He because said that. You know, he said that.
0: I know he said that. Yeah. Because he didn't want other people in the company thinking that I got preferential treatment and got on a closer job.
1: Mm. Well, I mean, and you, you probably just answered my next question the immediate thing that I thought of whenever you said you experienced such camaraderie with the people in the job size is like, man, it is not just a given thing that the grandson enters the company and there's camaraderie, right? You could see there being right. a lot of weird tension and feelings and unsaid things going on. So are there specific things that you think they did to, to make sure that in some ways you were part of the team?
0: I think that approaching the the role with just uh, a mountain of humility mm-hmm. and, you know, not coming across like I knew everything because I really didn't know anything and not trying to fake it uh, and just offering a hand whenever I could. When I, when I saw that, uh, you know, someone could use a hand taking the initiative to jump in and, and help on things that weren't really necessarily uh, my responsibility. Uh, I think those types of things are, are what, I mean, it's really the same with everyone, whether your last name Sergeant in our, in our company or anybody else's last name. If you jump in and, and you offer hand and, and you try to bring value, uh, you're usually pretty well received. Hmm.
1: And how long did you work at the company while your grandfather was there? How long did y'all overlap for?
0: So they sold the company in 1988. Hmm. So it would be five years for me.
1: Okay five five years you overlapped and and then can you walk people through the understanding of what the decision to sell looked like and how that occurred and what kind of transpired after that
0: yeah, so now we're talking you know we, we talked about a company that started with two dump trucks and a shovel in the in the twenties and thirties and and now we're in the eighties and we have a company that's now built or paved or both about two thirds of the interstate in maine and uh at the time about 250 employees uh, so in the 70s my dad Jim uh, and my uncle Ralph took over owning the company and my dad became the president CEO uh, and then as, as the years went on for the next uh, let's say 6, eight, ten 10 years uh, different things happened both my dad and my uncle had interests business interests outside the company and uh, so they they were trying to figure out what, what does succession planning look like, you know, for us. And at that time, they, they were approached by what was then a, a pretty big investment banking name, EF Hutton, that there was someone in Paris, France, that was interested in buying them, which was, you know, why would anybody in Paris, France be interested in something in Maine? Um, so the, the, the French folks came over and bought the company in 1988. So that, that kind of gave my dad, my uncle, the transition, the you know ownership succession that they needed at that mm-hmm. time.
1: And, and did you have aspirations to own the company or had that not even crossed your mind at that point? I don't even know how old you would have been at yeah. that
0: point. So I would have been, at, at that point, I was 25. My dad was always careful to point out that I was no better than anybody else. And, and he, he's right, you know, uh, that- anything anybody got they'd have to work for. And, and so I was, I had grown into a superintendent project management position by then, but by no means was I in any place to, to step in and run that company. And, and I, I think they knew that. I, in some ways, I think they were saving me from that too. Hmm. Uh, You know, I, I I think that, you know, they saw how this family business when there's a number of owners involved can really fracture a family And I would say that the family generally got along very well, but there were, you know, there were some, some knobby places in there that, uh, and I think maybe they were, you know, trying to save me from that, but I think it accomplished a lot of things and that, you know, I'd be okay either way.
1: Mm. I'll never forget the first time you told me this story and it's like, we're sitting in the sergeant offices so I know how the story ends, right? Like I know like, okay, it's now a company of 400 plus people all over Maine. Herb is the, uh, or Herb came back, owned the company. Now it's an employee owned company. And so I know how the story ends, but then whenever we get to this point in the story in the history of the company, I'm like, I have no clue how this is going to go. Like what is about to happen right now? And so I assume that's where people are at right now. It's like what is about to happen right now. So if I remember correctly, I mean, it's just got all the makings of a good narrative. If you haven't sold the movie rights yet, you should probably think about selling the movie rights. Um, have
0: you I'll have you do the the write up on
1: it? There you go. I like it. So, at this point if I remember correctly, you actually worked for the for the company that was now owned by uh, the French folks. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And how long did you work for?
0: I I worked there for three years. I had a, a major project up at Loring Air Force Base in Northern Maine. And so I wanted to finish that project. But also in that intervening three years, the parent company that bought us went through a pretty heavy financial downturn and they were acquired by a larger company that was then acquired by another larger company. And there was no culture. It was... Uh, all they wanted was cash out of our company and sell all your equipment and send, send the money over. So I started making plans a year or two after the sale to start my own business and, and in 19, the end of 1991, I left the company HE Sargent, and I started uh, in, in 1992 Sergeant and sergeant with my brother Shane. So we just did you know, the same business just on a much, much smaller scale really local to Bangor, Maine.
1: Okay, couple questions on this stage. So, I mean, so often whenever you talk to really remarkable leaders. It's like, yeah, they learned a lot from watching people that did it really well, but they also, and sometimes are more informed by being parts of organizations that didn't do it well. And that like, oh man, I never want to be like that. Is there anything in that three-year period that you think you took away as lessons or principles that maybe you even look up today and you would say, man, that informed my leadership style or the way that I run a business?
0: Yes, definitely. I think that over that three years and definitely over the following decade or more with that company, the focus went away from execution in the field. The focus went to a lot of, I guess, management du jour type things, total quality management, different things that they tried to put in place, but they never really focused heavily on field execution. And that's one of the things when I left. I said, you know, we we have to focus on field execution. We have to focus on actually doing what we say we're going to do. Mm. Uh, We actually have to follow up on our word, follow up on our commitments. And those are some of the things that have begun to to fall apart. My dad retired shortly after they sold the company. And there was just a lot of pressure from the Europeans on that company to to do anything, to, to try to make more money. And most of them did not work. They just, they, if you ask me, they ruptured the culture of the company. Mm. And and I wanted to be able to create a good, strong culture where the uh, people got together every day, and and it was kind of like nobody leaves till we're all done. Mm. You know, mm. just that kind of camaraderie. Just if if we've got two crews, one working on one side of town, one on the other, before one goes home, he calls the other one. To make sure you don't need a hand over there you're all set and that's just we all got together that way that's the way it always used to be at he sergeant and that had begun to to uh, to fall apart in a lot of ways so yeah. i wanted to make sure we we kept that we're all in it together
1: i could imagine it could be almost a little bit devastating to see this thing that your grandfather built and watch kind of the fundamental pillars of what made it great literally just being eroded. I mean, was that hard to watch?
0: It, it was It probably was harder for him. Mm. It, it was, it was hard for me to watch. And, you know, I, I became, I became a, a little bit of a victim of some of the things that they did because they didn't want me to grow. And so they, they would undertake some practices that, most people wouldn't undertake to make sure that they got a job instead of me or that sort of thing. Oh, so you're saying people,
1: after you started your own company? After yeah, you la- yeah. Okay, and you started the company, and what was the new company called again? Sergeant, Sergeant. And the old company was still named AG Sergeant, correct? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you, you've got two companies in Maine, probably not that far from each other, that both have the name Sergeant.
0: Ten Miles, and and that created some hard burn.
1: Golly. I mean, so was it a little bit like a awkward relationship or was there tension kind of as you were going for bids and as you were going for deals and stuff like that?
0: There wasn't on my part. I just I was just a young kid. You know, I I think I was 27, 28 years old. I'm just a young kid out there trying to make a living. Literally, Mm -hmm. I'm just this is all this is. It's about a living. And I'm I'm just out there trying to make a living and, and build a small company. And I think that they had some heartburn with it. But from my point of view, I just, you know, I could see their employees at bid openings or at different pre-bid type meetings, and we could have a conversation because I was all still friendly with them. Mm. It was really kind of the upper management that was more of a problem.
1: Gotcha. Are there any lessons in those first years of running your own company that you had to learn the hard way? Because you're coming from a superintendent position within a large organization to now, it's like, man, it's... It's you and a couple folks and some contractors, right? So, what are the lessons you had to learn the hard way?
0: Well, the, the, a lot of the lessons is in the inside that larger company before it was. This was before cell phones. You know, we had two way radios, and if I needed whatever it was I needed, if I needed a D8 dozer, I could call the radio on the radio and say, "Can you get me a D8?" And you know, as long as I can justify the need, I'd get the D8. When I started in business on my own. Uh, you know, I didn't have a single thing. I didn't have a shovel. I mean, I had one in my house, right? But I didn't have half a dozen. Sho- I had to go buy shovels. I had to go buy rakes. I had to go buy pipe lasers. I had to buy trench shields. I had to buy vehicles, all these different things that I just always took so for granted that were just right there. In the construction industry, uh, surety bonding is is quite a thing. So, at H.E. Sargent, if we needed a bond for a project, we just faxed. You know what a fax is, right? We just <laughs> I've heard,
1: I've heard I've heard stories and tales about it, but that's all. That's the extent of what we, I do.
0: We faxed a request for a bid, a bond, and we got it. And now, when I'm on my own with a very very thin capital structure, for me to call and get a bond, you know, I I kind of fax the thing in, and they call back like. Wait a minute, what's this? We got to talk to you about this. You know, so I, I learned a lot of lessons in those first two or three years, uh, you know, lessons about when payroll is tight, what are you going to do? You know, you're not going to take your own pay, right? That's, you're going to take care of those people first. And trying to get the capital structure normalized for the size of business we were doing was was a two or three year process.
1: Mm. Okay. And how long did you run sergeant and sergeant for? And then you got to tell people how everything went down following that.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> so so sergeant and sergeant, we, we started out very small. Uh, by the end of the 1990s, we were doing about $10 million worth of work a year. And um, I hired two people, Tim Folster and George Thomas. Tim was a, a very high-end ops guy and George was a very high-end finance guy. And those two guys gave us immediate credibility. And so within the next five years, we doubled in size uh, with the advent of those guys and the other people we already had. And as we, as we were growing, uh, we were keeping our ear to the ground on HE Sargent because now they're a parallel company. They're not the same company as us. They're a parallel company. And we started hearing rumors that this great big German behemoth That owns them, you know, four layers down is like, why do we even have this company? So we approached them uh, through an intermediary about buying the company and eventually worked it out. That was in March of 2005, uh, I think. And by July 2005, we had bought the assets of the company. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I mean, that is just the most absurd thing ever. Because you're I mean, you're doing twenty million dollars a year at that point, yeah. and you're acquiring what is now uh I mean, how big was was HE Sargent?
0: They were doing about 120 a year. Yeah.
1: So how do you even do that? How does that even I didn't even know that could happen. How does that happen?
0: <laughs> it takes some selling skills. Yeah. Apparently. Uh, <laughs> it takes it takes personal commitment. You know, I mean, when you go to the bank and say into the bonding company and say, I know this company is six times our size, but we think this works. And here are the reasons why. And we had good reasons. And they, and they, were, they were very valid reasons. And, and here's what I'm willing to do personally. Herb Sargent is willing to do. And it's basically every chip that I have, whether it's an automobile or a building or a piece of real estate or a house or whatever it is, every chip that I have is going into the middle of the table. And if this doesn't work, you get it all. And you know, that, I mean, that includes retirement plans everything went into the middle of the table, but we also were able to, to come up with a plan. A lot of the equipment was getting older. So we came up with a plan to sell a lot of the equipment. In fact, almost all the equipment uh, that gave us some capital that changed our ratios back to something that was a little bit more appreciable than what it would have been. So uh, and then we rented equipment until we owned it again after that. So it was really, I guess, getting the folks bought in to the fact that we could run the company. And, and actually, if we can improve their execution is what we showed. You know, if we can improve their execution over the next five years by 3%, that's this many millions of dollars a creep to the bottom line.
1: Well, and you pro- it probably helps that you have now the reputation of having doubled a company over the course of a year. That you have that track record that you can
0: show yeah. them. The other, the other major piece is both Tim Folster and George Thomas had worked for H. E. Sargent, so see. the industry knew them both. Uh, the folks in the in the surety industry, the banking industry, knew them both, and I think they thought the three of us made a, made a very good team, and, and we did actually.
1: Mm. So, at that point in your life, how how old are you at that time? Uh, Forty two. Okay. What is your mindset or attitude towards risk? I mean, because, like you said, you're putting all your chips at the center of the table. Are you a very like? Do you just does risk not phase you? And that's your personality type, or was that intimidating for you? Or how is your headspace around that?
0: Well, frankly, in the construction business, you, you kind of get jaded to risk, mm-hmm. and that's part of the problem with it because quite often. We get overjaded to risk and, and, it, and it takes us down. Yeah. But th- that was a risky move looking back on it. I'm not sure I appreciated how risky it was at the time hmm. because, you know, at that age, you've you got plenty of runway and you can make it up. You know, if, they say if you go broke, you can, you can make it back again, I guess. But I felt really confident. I didn't feel like the risk was very high. And the way we structured the deal gave us some advantages over time. And also the personnel, we knew probably still two thirds of the personnel at the company, Tim and George and I did. So we felt like they would really respond well to our return, that they're not owned by some, some uh, you know, big behemoth out of Germany or whatever. Now it's family owned and they can stop up in, in the office and if they've got a question, they can ask it. And and we played that card pretty hard, frankly, for the first the first you know, year or so, we made it a point to be very, very visible. And there's two things construction workers want. That's backlog, in other words, work ahead of them, and good equipment. And, and so we provided both backlog and good equipment. And I think we provided uh, decent leadership for them to, to be able to, to make money. And we also set up a program where we you know, said, this is the way we're going to share the profits if they come. So hmm. so there was a bonus structure to that as well.
1: I love how you just simplified that. One of the things that I thought about is actually kind of a principle or a paradigm of looking at things that Zach, who I know you know, has taught me. He's our COO. One of the ways he looks at things is as a leader, his primary customer is our team. And so he, he's constantly thinking like, okay, if I'm a frontline employee, then my customer is the customer. If I'm a leader, then one of my customers, I have many customers, but one of my primary customers is the team. And so what do you do anytime you're trying to serve a customer, find out what the customer wants and needs most deeply. And that's just what I thought of whenever you came in you're like, okay, what does, what does our customer want to need being our team? And it sounds like backlog and equipment right. were, were your answer to that question. And so is it truthful to say that that probably really helped you build trust with your team quickly? The fact that you saw their needs and met them quickly?
0: I think those two tangible pieces were very important that we, we came in. But the intangible piece was our visibility. I think that, that our visibility and actually going on to jobs and, and noticing if something was not going you know, just the way it ought to go. And, and saying something. And then those people were like, wow, this is, we got it back now. You know, for 15, 17 years, uh, we didn't have it back because we didn't have an operations type person leading the company or at a, in a heavy leadership position in the company. And I, I think that that was a really important aspect of it. So take those two tangible things, the backlog and the equipment, and then put in the intangible the fact that we cared, we're out there pushing with them. Uh, I think those things really help cement things going forward for us. And at this point, you know, I, I borrowed a lot of money to make this happen. Mm-hmm. And you and I talk. I think the first time I told you, I've been in survival mode for almost thirty years. And you know, we we went into survival mode in 2005 when we bought that company. There was a lot of debt to pay back, and. You know, we could not make ten-year investments in personnel and training systems and that sort of thing. We had to worry about what got us through this year, and that's a place I'm so glad to have behind me. Yeah, that that place where we're where we're planning year to year or twelve to twenty-four months out. I'm so glad to have that behind me and be in a position. I can't explain to you the freedom, and I'm, I'm probably getting ahead of myself here, but the freedom of having a capital structure in the company that allows us to look at things 20, 40, 60 years out. Mm.
1: Okay. This is a little bit of a jump ahead, but I think it's, it's worth highlighting. Do you think there were things that you eventually did that got you out of that survival mode that you maybe could have done earlier, you just weren't aware of them? Or do you think you were literally in survival mode for the season that you had to be in it and that as soon as you got out, you
0: did? I, I think that the survival mode is is all-encompassing. It, it I mean, it's, it's hard to get your head up above when you're in survival mode and, and start thinking about the future and thinking about growth and – you know the years two i mean so we hit a recession 3 years after we bought the company
1: yeah that would be 08 right
0: yeah yeah 08 and 09 were very very good years for us so you know our capital structure really improved uh and so you know but it was still it was still not as not as robust as i wanted it to be so we had to be careful about what costs we carried through the winter and you know what we do with training now were probably layoffs at that point in time So I would say for me, trying to get to the point where I can lift my head above the survival mode. Mm. And, And that started to happen around 2015. The economy started to come back and I could see, okay, we've been, I call it, we've been, we've stepped away from the draft for a few years. We didn't bring on a lot of new talent. And now 2015, 2016 are coming and I'm looking ahead and I've got, you know, no pipeline of talent. So, you know, that's for me, the big mistake I made in my career, the big weakness in my management was not understanding that I needed to stay in at the draft and keep developing people. And that's when I, when I say that freedom of having a more robust capital structure really gives us that opportunity to, to keep investing in people and keep the pipeline coming. Because when 2016, 17, 18 came, we did not have the pipeline of talent to take advantage of all the opportunities that were there.
1: Hmm. I think it would be helpful to hear your description of what survival mode looks like and what survival mode feels like. Because I think for some people, if you're in it for long enough, you don't really call it survival mode. You just say, This is what it's like to run a business. This right. has just become right. my normal. And you don't even know that there's another way in some ways. And, and so, what you're telling people right now is really encouraging. There is another better way. But I'd love for you to give the most crystal clear picture you can of this is what survival mode looks like. This is what it feels like.
0: Survival mode to me, you know, at the executive level is okay, where are the ratios going to fall? Uh, what's our free cash flow going to be? what can we do with that free cash flow can we invest in people can we invest in equipment and none of those numbers are ever very good when you're in survival mode right they're mm-hmm. they're not you don't have enough free cash flow to to take care of the equipment purchases you'd like to do your your ratios your you know debt to worth ratios aren't where you wish they were and you just can't put the money into the people the way that I wish we could if I had known what I know now if I I would have gone and borrowed more money to, to keep hmm. investing in yeah. people because that investment is a 30-year investment, not a one-year investment. I, I would have found a way if I knew if I knew then what I know now, I would have found a way to fund that continued pipeline and investment in people.
1: Yeah, because from a leadership perspective, when you're in that spot where the numbers are always looking bad, you never have enough to, to basically functionally keep the thing you've got going, going, and certainly not enough to build on it. Where is your headspace? Where is your emotional space as a leader in that moment?
0: So it, it's, I guess I would use an analogy if, if you're an instrument pilot, you know, and you're in the fog and you're wondering if your gauges are telling you the right thing. Hmm. And as, as you're looking at the gauges and you're going, wow, that, I can't be at 1,000 feet. I thought I was at 5,000 feet. You know, and and so what do those do to you as a person? You know, the, the stress that puts on you when you suddenly realize you're at a 1,000 feet instead of 5,000. So you only have a 1,000 feet of altitude to play with under you, not 5,000. And you begin to look at the back of the plane and say, okay, what don't I need here? Let's open the cargo door and pitch out what don't I need. And sometimes you throw away some things that maybe you shouldn't have thrown away. Mm.
1: It's kind of like a scarcity mindset, like what's the bare minimum we can get by with? And it's like, that's yeah. never a good approach to right. to running or, or certainly not growing a business.
0: Right. It, it's, you know, and it's not that we didn't trust the numbers we had. The numbers just didn't show what we wanted. The numbers showed us being at a thousand feet. You know, the altimeter showed us being at a thousand feet. We wanted it to show us at 25,000. But, um, you know, so as a result, you can only, there's only so much you can do. In a n in an aircraft or in a business when you're at 1000 feet.
1: Man, I'm looking up. Have you heard the poem if by chance uh, by Rudyard Kipling? I have. Yeah. So there's a line in that. Let me pull it up real quick. I didn't realize I was going to be referencing poetry today, but here we are.
0: Well, you are talking to me after all.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, the original poet, right? Uh, <laughs> no, but kind of the attitude there, I, I think it's it's summarizing this poem. And, and also what you talked about before, just with the, con- uh, the, the construction industry in general, it's if you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. Just kind of that idea of like, there's moments and you better, you better recognize them when you're in them and not make them too frequent. But there's moments where in some ways, like you got to risk it all. And and in your case, in this case, you're saying I would have borrowed more money and, and yeah. pushed it all in the center, knowing that this could result in me losing it all. But if, I, if I'm if i not willing to lose it all, I question whether or not I can actually win. And it sounds like that's part of the attitude that, that now informs your leadership in some capacity, correct? Yeah.
0: I mean, you have to, with, say, nominally 400 people, you know, and, and when you extend that to families, you've got roughly 2,000 people you're affecting. So, I mean part of that survival mindset is also their survival too mm. now they could have likely gotten a job somewhere else but it's also trying to make sure that we keep this company going for them so in a risk at- all scenario we probably could have borrowed some money and and been okay with that in a risk at all scenario you have to think about the people and you know on the front sure. lines too so that was one of the things that probably kept us from, from going deeper into debt on that is, is we don't want to get to a point where we can't extricate ourselves mm. in the end.
1: But it's almost like scarcity versus abundance, or if we're going to use the language that we're talking about here, it's like the question you're asking if you're in survival mode is literally, how do we survive? And the question that might be more helpful to consider is like, how do we actually live? Like, how do we make this business something that we want to be a part of? And and it's like that different question, it sounds like, provides some some different answers and different results.
0: We did work hard on training, um, mm-hmm. you know, the existing people we had. And we worked hard on improving our processes to really have optimal execution out there and what we do.
1: There's one more thing kind of from this season that I'd love for us to zoom in on. You talked about how it sounds like the company actually grew in 08 and 09. Is that correct? Yeah, we did. Okay. And so were there things that you did pre-recession in 08 that maybe even you learned from that you're even bringing into the climate that we're in right now economically, or are there lessons that you learned from that season? What are your thoughts there?
0: Yeah. So we, we were doing a lot of, of, uh, of housing work in Virginia, for instance, in Virginia and Maryland. Uh, we have an office down in Richmond, Virginia. And we had probably three or four contracts that totaled up to $30, $40 million worth of work. And then we, we kept hearing in 2006, 2007, you know, talk about the housing bubble. And, and we went to our manager down there and we said, okay, we're going to get bit if we don't get out of this housing business. So let's rotate out of this and go into, uh, we do a lot of landfill work, a lot of airport work. So we said, let's rotate back into that. So when the housing crisis hit us in 2008, we were completely out of it. Now, I mean, in a way, I think that's kind of dumb luck, but at the same time, you know, we did make the call and we did do the work and, and we got out of it. And, and, you know, thanks to, So that manager, Pat Dubay down there, um, you know, we we went ahead and and got other work. As we go through now, having learned more, as we, you know, I'm sure there's a recession. If we're not in it now, it's on the way, right?
1: It's
0: every six or eight years this happens. And we were preparing for it actually back in 2019. Uh, We started, you know, again, we're in the plane and we're saying, okay, what, what delivers value and what doesn't? One doesn't deliver value, and we had a couple operations uh, subsidiaries that really weren't making any money. And we decided that we needed to to part with those. We did, and some real estate that was really just costing money. But what we're trying to do now is look at the various segments of work that we're involved in: airport work, landfill work, highway work, commercial site work, uh, renewable work. And we're we're trying to look at what the pipeline is on those, and trying to establish is there is there some kind of a lever that gets thrown that impacts that particular segment of the work so in the renewable business for instance in Maine if we get a new governor lepage who was our former governor uh, the renewable energy business is going to die because he hates it so you know that's one of those things that we have to watch for so we kind of look at it like if you take a hurricane if you look at these hurricane charts and they show the cone of influence of these hurricanes and we're trying to look at each one of these segments like it has its own cone of influence and what's likely and what's unlikely. And it's it's a really, it's more art than science, but we're trying to figure out how these different uh, segments of business really affect us. And we never were really that granular about it in the past. We never were really that disciplined about looking at not just the market, but what's behind the market that's pushing it.
1: Yeah, I think that's so powerful because I, I think in some ways... What you're doing there is you say, well, okay, well, anytime we move forward, we're always operating in the realm of probabilities and assumptions. Right. And so, like, we do that a lot with vision casting and goal setting and talking about projections for what we want the business to do. It would probably also be wise to just check our assumptions on what do we think our industry is going to do? What do I think the economy is going to do? What do we think is going to happen within the workforce and things like that? It sounds like what you're doing is you're just making sure you're labeling the Assumptions that you're making, and saying, "Well, if these things that we think could happen do, how does that affect us, and how do we respond?" Is that a way to maybe summarize it?
0: Yeah, on a programmatic basis. Yeah, it's it's okay. Take let's take the aggregate of all these scenarios, but everyone is every segment is not going to have a worse scenario. So, for instance, I mean, we know uh, that President Biden has put a lot of money into infrastructure, so that's probably going to be a better case scenario than than. Commercial site work, for instance. So there's just a number of different. We got to we got to evaluate each one of them. They're not all going to be down. They're not all going to be up. But we've got to be able to to react. Uh, we got to have our eye on you know on the horizon enough and be able to to react uh, or proact, I should say, to the market changes. You know, six months to a year before they change. So if we have a lot of renewable work for us, that's big off road heavy equipment. If we have a lot of uh, street reconstruction—that's smaller on-road equipment. So we have to be able to to be really agile with what we carry for a fleet of equipment, depending on what's coming down the line. And that really takes a keen eye on on what those various segments are going to be.
1: Hmm. I I love that because it makes something that could be a very emotional thing, if it just stays yeah. internal, into like the way you're talking about it is just hyper logical. Because it's like the the you know, we coincide with a lot of business leaders that the conversations that they have around this are literally with themselves in their mind. And it's really easy to carry that conversation kind of through uh, like some of all fears lens, which is like, well, what if the worst possible thing happens in every possible sector? And it's like when you actually do it on a whiteboard and you look at what's likely, you're like, okay, the worst possible thing has never, ever happened in every single sector. Opportunity doesn't go away. It just shifts. And so, can you speak to who's in the room for that conversation and how often y'all are having those conversations right now?
0: So, who's in the room? We have our chief operating officer, Eric Ritchie, CFO, Tasha Gardner. Our area managers are all in the room. Uh, So, we have Five regions, uh, local to Bangor, Northern Maine, Southern Maine, New Hampshire, and our Mid-Atlantic region. So they're all in the room. Our estimating team is in the room um, because they've got the best handle on the pipeline. Our business development manager is in the room because he's got a good handle on the pipeline. And he's the one really tasked to, uh, he and, and our estimator, Aaron Tidd down in down in uh, Virginia, are the ones that are tasked with setting up a spreadsheet. It's actually through Power BI that we can actually turn the volume up on, so to speak, on each segment and turn it down so that it simulates what that's gonna do for us based on the pipeline of work that we have. So if we say, we know what's here for a pipeline of work, we know the specific projects, but we think that that market is gonna be 50% of what it was, we can dial the volume down back on it and see what it does to the overall package. So it's, it, there's probably 10 people in that room.
1: Gotcha. If if someone doesn't have a 400 person operation spread across the state, but maybe they've got a, a 20 person business, uh, what would be the advice that you would give them about maybe the fundamentals of this conversation and, and who should they, they should make sure they're listening to? Do you have any thoughts on that?
0: So first of all, I think resilience is is the key. And I know you've talked about that a lot on your podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And and we talk about it a lot, too, is 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 to be resilient for whatever comes and and, you know, to be prepared uh, to have margins of safety in your finances, in your operations, in your backlog, that sort of thing. But when it when it comes to understanding your markets in, in a smaller organization, you know, I mean, I, I have the benefit of having been that uh, not all that long ago. So understanding the markets. And I mean, if you're a three-person organization, understanding the markets and and what the levers are to to those potential markets is really key. And I think you have to list out. And and to me, you'd also uh, do well to list collateral markets too, to to whatever it is that you're working on. Just, you know, whatever is adjacent, adjacent markets that, that may be opportunities for you that you hadn't looked at in the past. So, just really understanding the market and then the the kind of adjacent opportunities around that market would, would be the key place I'd start. And then, you know, make sure you've got margins of safety in your business so that you can continue to invest through a downturn.
1: And and then I think the other principle that I take away from it is like, okay, you've got you've got Tasha and Eric in that room who are seeing kind of the organization from close to a 360-degree view, they're thinking about the big picture, but then you're also making sure you've got people in the room that are, are maybe not seeing the full scope of things, but they're hyper-focused on their scope of things, sure. and they might be catching things that you're not catching. So it sounds like you're really wanting to keep your thumb on the pulse of what they're seeing.
0: Yeah, it's, so Eric was with another company at one point in time, and, and he went through a strategic planning process, and the CEO said, we're going to be this size in 10 years. You guys figure it out. So, so he came up with a goal and said, now you guys figure it out. And from, if you take it from, from my point of view, that's kind of backwards planning. It's like, let's get everybody together and figure out what, what we really can accomplish. What are the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats? Uh, what, what is out there for opportunity, both uh, in terms of personnel to, to help beef up the business and external uh, you know, markets and see what's, see what's real. So many businesses have gone down, planting a flag on some huge revenue number, and and that doesn't bring value to the organization over time necessarily.
1: Well, yeah, there's so much leadership gold in that that doesn't even just apply to the recession. And I mean, the the, the language you use there, it's like, he came up with a goal and then brought it to them. Versus we came up with a goal that we decided we could and wanted to go after. And it's like that model, like, you know, thinking about biblical examples, it's like, yeah, there were times where Moses went up to Mount Sinai and heard from God and said, this is what I got from God and I'm bringing it to you. But there were a lot more times where Moses was along the people saying, this is what we need to do. And by right. the way, like you may think you're Moses, but I wouldn't put my money on it. So, okay. so it's kind of like just saying like, okay, I'm going to work with the team to define the vision for where we are going. And, and it feels like that's part that's, and this is a great transition into culture that's embedded in the culture of what y'all do is kind of that we mentality. Is that fair to say?
0: Yeah, yeah, we we really work hard to to get people to to bring value in ways that that gives them pride and in, the, in the way that they brought value. You know that they can be creative. You know that initiative really is. You know it's it's propelled by creativity, and and they can take initiative. And they they primarily in a place where they can feel safe coming up with an idea, coming up with uh, you know some something that may sound like it's outside-the-box crazy, but we talk it through. And, you know, we got a project in, in Portland, Maine right now that, frankly, was outside-the-box crazy. We talked it through. We got operators in the office on a Friday. Uh, we all talked it through. We designed this piece of equipment, and we our shop fabricated it into what we needed. And, you know, we're doing great work with, with that whole thing now. So just the opportunity for, for them to get together and advance their ideas, and be listened to, and and be heard, and then see it work. Mm. You know, and see this thing actually work, and, and working very, very well. And the amount of pride that comes into that. And the pride isn't just really with the people involved in it. It's all across the company. You know, because the people on Facebook or Instagram or wherever, they're like, yeah, that's, that's my company. Our, our guys, our operators, you know, another operator can say, It was operators that came up with that idea.
1: Oh. That is so encouraging. That's such a powerful message to share because there's so many people in this podcast audience and, and certainly within, you're in the Path for Growth community, you know, you met many of these people that right. they really are wired like that visionary type of leader, right? And like one of their, I'm mean, part of their secret sauce is they can think of some crazy ideas, right? And and right. it's just so crazy, it just might work is kind of like the MO, right? And I know, I mean, you, you have no shortage of that in you too. So uh, you, can nice. you can identify and relate a lot to these people people right but i think sometimes when people start to grow their organization and they start to have more people involved they you know the message that visionary leaders always hear is you got to be more patient you got to you make sure you get people on board with this idea and i think sometimes the message people can get is you can't do crazy anymore and you can't do, you can't go out on these adventures anymore or build these things that you're never going to do anything truly remarkable ever again. And I feel like that story you just shared is, I mean, y'all did something truly remarkable still, and it was crazy, right? But it was the way that you approached it was not, oh, visionary leader has crazy idea that he imposes on the team. It sounds like it was much more of a team decision. Is that fair to say?
0: Yeah, it, it was brought. It was brought to us from our area manager through the you know through the operator, the superintendent, the area manager, and we talked it over. And we said, you know, run with this. And but before we pull the trigger, we have to bring those operators into this office and sit down with them and say, okay, before we do this, we need to make sure you're okay, you're bought into this, and you know, can this work. You guys are the ones that know. We, I don't know. I mean, I can get on an excavator and I can load a truck, but I don't know what these guys know. So it's it's really, you know, it's it's up to them to tell us whether they think it'll work. And and there was probably some risk in these guys saying, yeah, it'll work, you know. And we didn't get two thumbs up, let's go. We got, yeah, it'll probably work. But, you know, here we are and it's working. And, and, and those guys, that whole team has so much to be proud of.
1: Oh, it, it, I mean, and that's just thrilling. It's like if you actually sit down and talk with most people about the type of environment that they want to work for, do people want to work for an environment that's like everything is predictable all the time and we never do anything that we're saying it will probably work? It's like no one actually wants that. Like everyone actually wants to be a part of something where it's like, this feels a little crazy, but it just might work. And if, if you do that with wisdom, I think it can introduce a lot of meaning to every level of an organization.
0: Yeah, so, you know, the, the creativity piece, as I said, I, I think that's what billows the sails of initiative Because without creativity. I mean, you can take initiative, but if you, don't have, if you don't have an independent idea, what are you going to initiate? So, you know, you've got to have some kind of an idea to initiate and then the courage to, to try to initiate it. And, you know, if, if we get to that point where it all does work out, like this situation has, like many situations have for us, there's a lot of joy there, right? There's true joy in that. And the thing about that joy is it never would come to you at the back end if we didn't have a place where people felt comfortable and safe being vulnerable with their ideas on the front end.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, oh, I, that last line is so key. People say, "Oh, I want my people to be creative. I want them to come up with ideas." What, what I think a lot of times we don't recognize is creativity and vulnerability. They literally overlap each other, right? right. Because part of real creativity and initiative and stepping out, it's like opportunity that it could fail. That is always right. embedded in every creative act. And I think some leaders say they want creativity but they're not willing to stomach the possibility of failure so is is there something that had to happen inside you or something that you've learned or that you've like maybe created a culture within the team where you've said like you know obviously in ways that we deem wise we're going to do some things organizationally that might not work
0: yeah so first of all we're not going to subordinate safety right that's that's a non-starter and so we're not going to do something crazy that puts people at risk. We're going to do things that maybe somebody's never tried before. And 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 we're going to make sure we do it right. And when I say that, we're going to, in this instance, we took an excavator that's typically 12 feet wide, and we took its tracks and made it 35 feet wide so it could straddle a huge trench and walk back and forth across it. So the, lot, the operator is literally like over a 20-foot deep hole all the time. So – in order to do that, I needed to see engineering that proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that this guy's not going to end up in the hole. So, so that that's you know that's one of those things we have to make sure that the safety aspect is never subordinated.
1: Okay, pause right there, real quick, and then we'll, okay. we'll jump back in. Like the principle there that I think is so powerful that people should recognize is constraints are the breeding ground for creativity. I think yeah. so often we think creativity is this unadulterated autonomy and freedom. It's like, no, constraints make you be resourceful. And so you just put a constraint on the project that you said, we are unwilling to operate on this unless safety, like we are, have a hundred percent reassurance that safety is not going to be sacrificed. And it's like right. in that you're, you're creating the boundaries within which people can be outrageously resourceful.
0: Right. And, and so that really is, is worked out for us. I mean, and it's, you asked, I think what have i in my history in my own personal i've always tried to be very creative and coming up with new ways and you know my operators when i was a foreman i probably drove them crazy because i changed things three or four times a day <laughs> you know i'm sure they were like can we just finish up the day um, but, <laughs>
1: just one day we just went one <laughs>
0: yeah, well just one hour can but, <laughs> but they also appreciated that i was i i saw bottlenecks or i saw opportunities in in the execution of what we we're doing that we could we could improve mm. and so that itself takes creativity and you know the initiative the desire to have that and so I've been gifted with with the ability to to stand and, and look over an operation and, and for me I have to stand back away from it I have to back away so I can see the whole thing and then I can see you know different bottlenecks and different Pieces that I can change for execution to, to really gain or safety. Whereas if I'm in the middle of it, I don't really have that opportunity. You know, you're you got trucks and excavators and bulldozers flying around, and and it's you don't see it all. But when you back away to a and and, and get yourself on a perch where you can see it, and I, I think that applies not just in construction. I think that applies in, in really almost anything. You you have to be able to 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 change your perspective. To get the picture, the big picture, whether it's, you know, whatever you're selling or whatever you're building, whatever you're doing. I think trying to get that big perspective is a key. Mm.
1: Well, and I think there's something to the idea that great leaders have this ability to fly around at 14,000 feet to see the big picture. But then, I mean, it comes back to that if poem. You're just like quoting Rudyard, or I'm quoting Rudyard Kipling just referencing everything you're you're saying is because, okay, I'm going to find the line real quick. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with... Kings nor lose the common touch. So it's like some people fly around at fourteen thousand feet, and then they go on a job site, and it's like, okay, you've lost the common touch. You are completely unrelatable, right. and your team no longer enjoys you or likes you or or any in any way it connects with you. But then right. there's some leaders that it's like they can fly around at fourteen thousand feet in service of the business they can see the big picture, but then they can literally even later that day or later that hour be on a job site and have a conversation with someone that's literally their hands and arms are covered in mud and they can talk to that guy in a way that's connection. How do you preserve that? Because I would imagine that can be something that's really easy to lose.
0: Number one, uh, genuine caring is, is, I mean, you have to genuinely care for the people That you're working with. You have to love them. You have to love the people. And then, you know, approaching them with humility, the same as you want them to approach you with humility and kind of an in-service, how can I service you? How can I be of service to you? How can I bring value to you? And that they know that, that that's always, if you could have that be your aura before you arrive there, you know, that here comes Joe every time he comes here he's trying to figure out how he can make things better and i think you have to be in that place and and have a genuine regard for the people and a genuine regard for their safety and and well-being and not speak over their head mm. i mean i've kind of made my career i've always said it's more important for me to be able to relate with everyone on my crew than it is for me to be able to relate with a banker or a lawyer, or, you know, so I wear jeans and, and work boots all the time. That's just the way I am. And does it serve the business at 25,000 feet? I don't think it hurts it, but yeah, it serves as, it serves as a ground level.
1: There's something that I'm learning here that I don't think I picked up on until what you just said is it's like, okay, you got it. You got to gen- genuinely care and they got to know that you genuinely care. But it's not like that attitude. It's not like whenever you put on the hat of CEO and you fly around at 14,000 feet, that goes away. It's like, no, you're making decisions. It's strategic decisions now, focused on sometimes much bigger picture things than the pipe that's going in the ground. But man, the people that are making the best strategic decisions in service of their business, it's almost like their heart, their motive, their attitude is the exact same that it is whenever they're out in the field. Yeah. And so it seems like it's preserving the same attitude regardless of where you're at.
0: That, that's what I believe that, Alex, that, you know, j- just trying to maintain that, that level of approachability and humility. I just think that always serves. Well, I think it always mm. serves, you know, it ser- I think it serves the present. I think it serves the future.
1: Mm. How long was the organization under outside ownership before you came back in?
0: 17 years.
1: Okay, that's wild. And so like the culture was, I mean, in some ways systemically stripped down to its bare bones in that time. So much of what your grandfather instituted at the beginning was probably no longer visible whenever you came back in. I'll never forget. I mean, I had, I, I got to sit down with you. And Tasha and Eric, whenever I was there a handful of months ago, just visiting. And I asked a question, something along the lines of, like, what are the things that I need to know about Sergeant if I'm really going to know Sergeant? And I was looking at my notes from that meeting today, and I think it was Tasha that said it. I, and I just wrote down in quotes she said, there's just an undercurrent of caring across the organization. She said, an undercurrent of caring. And then we got, I mean, we got to go drive around on job sites and stuff like that. And I got to meet a bunch of people and and things like that. And it was like, oh, that's not just a phrase. That is true. It is alive and well. And it is just mind blowing that an organization can go 17 years with something in some ways that is so different than that. And then in such a short period, literally have it at every. I mean, level of the organization. So can you speak to, number one, how is that created? And then number two, how is it sustained, that undercurrent of caring?
0: I think that, you know, it was it was created again back in 2005 when we combined the companies together. We had some folks that were with Sergeant and Sergeant and some folks that were with HE Sergeant. We combined the companies together and just called them both Sergeant Corporation and Many of the people at H.E. Sargent again knew us, uh, although I was much younger when I had been there before. And all the people, of course, at Sargent and Sargent knew us. And just conversations between them all—you uh, know—I'm I'm sure there was more than one conversation. It was well, how's Herb Sargent doing these days? Anyways, is he is he still crazy like he was when he was twenty? <laughs> um, but. I think that underpinning, you know, those people telling the story, but then us showing, you know, I was very uh, transparent with the whole company. I said, you know, I, I put our I put our financial statement right on the wall, or our projected financial statement right on the wall. And I said, this is how much money we're going to how much money we're going to take in. This is the cost. This is the overhead. This is the net profit, and of that net profit, roughly fifty percent goes to the government. And what's remaining, we'll take twenty percent and share it with you people, and then the rest of the thirty percent goes to you know sustaining the business. So showing them up front that that we were really interested in in their in their best interest, and and in, in helping to to help them on their trajectory, not just professionally but financially and in some ways you know personally, I think really really helps. You know that. And then when Tasha came with us, uh, she brought a new spirit to that caring, frankly, and, and Eric too, uh, just really kind of lifted that whole spirit of caring and, and the idea that we are all here for each other. And you know, it's it's been since we became an ESOP in 2013. That was another step, you know, that says we're doing this for you. This is for you. So just there's so many pieces that go into it it's not just one thing but mm. it's i guess if i had to say what one thing is it is you you have to be on point and care to begin with you have to have genuinely care
1: it's so powerful and it's so cool to see how it's like the things that you told us about your grandfather's personality and leadership style it's like they're visible and and what's crazy is like yeah i mean to your credit, they're visible and embodied in you. And I think that's remarkable and amazing and no doubt has a lot to do with this, but it was also really cool for me to meet other people that are not part of your family that it's like, yeah. Oh, there's pieces of that guy that are alive and well in this person. And man, I, I get chills thinking about it because it's like, if that's not legacy, I don't know what is yeah. that, that like his, his, his attitude of empathy and care and prioritizing people has gone so far past him that you see it in people that aren't even related to him
0: yeah it's really amazing the kind of guy that he was and for that to to survive through what i'll call a 17 year cold period mm. uh, and that's probably being kind in some ways and <laughs> unkind in others but um, we just
1: took a break we were just on a break yeah. for a while <laughs>
0: So to go through that 17-year period, and he was still alive, by the way, when we bought the company back. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and so I took him to jobs uh, when we became one company, and and he was 99 years old. And, you know, his, I, I believe his presence there helped us a lot. And actually, uh, I remember now, the first year we were together, he stood up at 99 years old at our holiday party. and. We got both companies, everybody's there together, and he, he could, you know, barely talk, uh, but he stood up. We got a microphone in front of him, and he said, you know, I just can't tell you how pleased I am. Take what you have here and go with it. You know, you have an incredible opportunity and go with it. And it was just it was such a great – those are the kinds of things, uh, you know, that his, his legacy lasts way, way, way beyond, you know, his death. Hmm and And the same thing can happen you know on a on a more micro basis with our elder operators, you know the people that are more seasoned that are used to complaining about the young people. and you know I try to I try to get in the middle and draw them together, and I talk to the older people and I say your your legacy can be this. it can end the day you retire, and that's it. Everybody can talk about the pipe you put in or the dirt you loaded or whatever." Or it can go on for decades beyond. And you can take this young guy and you can mentor him like I know you were mentored when you were younger. And you can make your legacy last decades beyond just I'm retired and I'm gone.
1: Oh, that's so powerful. I I mean, and that's why I think we do a disservice whenever we call vision casting just a a financial metric. It's like vision casting is not a financial metric. Vision casting is what, what you just said, like looking someone in the eye and saying, I see something for you. You're not seeing the future big enough. You could have a legacy that goes well beyond yourself working here. And I want you to open your eyes and see it and then start acting in accordance with it. It's like, that is vision casting. You're you're unleashing the best in other people. And man, I, I mean, you're... I'm not blowing smoke. You're exemplary at that. And I think that that is at the core of what has made your company a company that leads leaders that leads leaders. And I'm just, yeah, I'm so grateful to know you. I'm so grateful that that we get to work with you and be connected to you in that way because it's just such a gift. And I I learn so much every time I get to visit or talk to you. It's just so cool. God damn it, Herb. I feel like this happens a lot whenever we chat. I've got like (laughs) we have made it through about a quarter of the page of things that I wanted to talk about today. So I hope you're down for a part two and maybe eventually a part three, because you kind of let the cat out of the bag that it's now an, uh, an employee owned company. It's an ESOP, which I mean that, I mean, that's one of the things that I know you're most passionate about. So I would love to, for us to get into like the transition into that and what that's done for the company. But then also it's like, you're one of the business owners that I know that like, oh yeah, he owns this really high functioning company that's making a difference in its state and it's uh, industry leader nationally. But like, you also have a life, which is brilliant. And it's like, I've met your wife, Tristine, and she like really yeah. likes you, which is a great thing. And, and, and it like, is a big help. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, and and you play baseball and you go down to Florida and you go to the lake house up in Maine. It's like, it's so refreshing to see someone that that's not just obsessively, like they don't idolize their business. Their business is part of what they do and where they serve, but you also have a life outside of it. And so I want us to talk about that. But before we go today, there's a couple things that I want to point people to. We're going to put the link to the Sergeant website in the show notes of this episode. Because I mean, I think it's you worked with Aaron Witt and their team at Build Witt yes. to, to do okay. the photos for that website and build that. It's just a beautiful website and gives such a picture of what they Thank do you. and the way they do it. So I would go check that out and and then also we're gonna put a link. This is really cool. Uh, Herb and the leaders on his team do a podcast. How often do you release the podcast episodes, Herb? Every week. Yeah, I mean, that's unreal. Yeah. Like, I do that too, but that's because it's like my job, right? This is just like <laughs> something that you do as a compliment to your job. And and uh, because their team is spread across Maine, right? And also they want to get the word Maine,
0: out. New Hampshire, Virginia. Yeah,
1: yeah that's right. I mean, you're spread all over the place. And so you built that literally as a communication platform to make sure you're spreading the culture and the undercurrent of caring to every level of the organization. Is that right?
0: Yeah, it started... Uh, During COVID, because we we just didn't feel like we could communicate with our people in a way, you know, we can send them emails, but I know how you feel about email. (laughs) You do? Do Do I share that often? Have you heard that? that? And and we can send them things in the mail. You know, we, for instance, we sent an email out on a Saturday. Tasha and Eric and I got together on a Saturday, you know, in the early stages of COVID, and said, "Okay, here's what's coming down the road," and you know, on Monday, everybody shows up at work and nobody's read the email. And I said, how are we gonna overcome this? We've just got to find a way to communicate. And so I, I bought a podcaster and a few microphones and we just started doing podcasts. And we we try to do a lot with it. We try to, you know, highlight different areas of the company. Uh, employees can give each other shout outs every week on the podcast. Sometimes we'll do a, a run where we'll do a prices right so they can guess what the price is of a particular piece of equipment, which we think is important for employee owners to know, you know, how much this costs so they can know how to take care of it. And so that's been two, two years now, a little over, a year and a half.
1: Oh, it's, it's great. I love it. I mean, yeah. some of our customers listen to it. I've met people that I didn't know and that don't know you that have listened to your podcast. They don't work for you. They listen to your podcast. I'm like, what on earth? Like, <laughs> this is such an absurd thing. But I, I mean, the thing, and we'll. I want to get more into that whenever we do a part two. Yeah. So I'm not even going to ask anymore. I'm just going to say we're doing a part two, right? Um, but but you the phrase imagine. that you, yeah, the phrase that you said that's I mean pretty powerful is we just started a podcast, and I think so so often and I have literally heard people say this. Oh, it would be cool to, or one day I would like to. It's like, y'all just did it. And, and I, I remember talking to you about it. You're like, we weren't really that concerned with having this amazingly produced thing. We just need to get right. a message out. And, and so that's what we did. And so we're going to put the link to that, uh, in the show notes as well. Final question to you before we go, what are you most excited about right now?
0: There's a lot to be excited about. Um, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to in the next six weeks, we begin to build our business plan for, for next year. And you know a lot of that, that pipeline, that the different things at work that we do, segments of work. So we're really working hard on getting that together. We've got a strong backlog already. So we're really excited about that. The people, part of the business is the one that always keeps me the most energized. And I think you know, we're moving into a new office later on this fall. In that office we'll have significant training space for our people, so I'm just really looking forward to to that opportunity to be able to to rub shoulders with the with the help and you know with the folks that come and 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 bring value to me and the rest of the the company every day. Looking forward to seeing my wife Friday she's been gone all week, so <laughs> I'm excited about that so yeah i mean it's, it's really uh, the future I think of our company. I just love the way we have it. Uh, you know, we have the vivid description of what we want it to look like, and it's it's very very people centric. And I just strongly believe that our company needs to build people, and then those people need to go build great projects. Mm. That's that's the way I see it. Is is we're kind of taking the, the revenues that we take are taken to build people that build projects.
1: Mm. Man, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm just as excited as you are about all of that. That's so be. cool. Uh, we, I mean, we say it at the beginning of every podcast, like we exist to help impact driven leaders. And like, truly, if someone were to ask me like, okay, who are some of the people that fit the bill of that description through and through? It's like, without a shadow of a doubt, your name would be one of the first ones that I mentioned. And then I think the evidence of that and the reason why I can so easily say that is because, really, the way you identify an impact-driven leader is, are they surrounded by impact-driven leaders? And I've gotten to meet many of your team members. I've certainly gotten to meet Tosh and Eric, and it's like, this doesn't stop with you. And and it's just so cool to see. And so... Man, I'm just so grateful for your example. I'm so grateful for you sharing uh, some of the story of your business on here. And I just believe, man, the best is yet to come.
0: I agree. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Herb. Okay, I referenced this poem so many times in that conversation. It feels appropriate just to end the conversation by reading If by Rudyard Kipling. So here it is. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about, don't deal in lies or being hated, don't give way to hating and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same. If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it, on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they're gone and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son. I I think there's so much about integrity, character, leadership, humility, perseverance, grit, and purpose that is woven into those words. And I think so many of those virtues and values and qualities are exemplified in the story of Sergeant Corporation as a whole and certainly in Herb's leadership. So Herb, we're grateful for your example and we're grateful for the way you choose to live and lead every single day because so many people get to benefit from it. Well, I hope that today's podcast was valuable for you. Uh, If you want to get more content like today's content, we send out an email every single Wednesday called Worth It Wednesday. I think most email isn't worth it. So we try to send at least one once a week that is worth your time and worth your energy. We send a principle worth learning, a question worth answering, and a recommendation worth taking. My goal whenever I write these emails is that I would give you something that would challenge you and encourage you to grow that you can read in under three minutes. And so, so many of you have already subscribed to that email email list. And it's so cool to see how you're putting those principles into action. But if you want to do that and be part of the Worth It Wednesday community, you can sign up at the link that's in the show notes or at pathforgrowth.com and just click sign up for Worth It Wednesday. Y'all, we're grateful for you. We're rooting for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service.
0: Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.